Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Glenn, the chief architect at Genesis, and we discuss how to empower your teams to work autonomously, what it means to digitally transform a company's contact center, and why it's important to listen to and implement customer feedback at every stage of company growth. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Dude, your beard's looking great. Uh, yeah, yeah. I keep trying to trim it. It's been a, over a year since I've actually had a proper haircut. So hopefully that one's showing off well enough as well. Me, me with scissors and my own trimmer. Uh, let's say it was touch and go at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> me too, man. I This is my first beard I ever grew and I started in the pandemic. And Wow, that's pretty epic. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I was trying to mess with it and figure it out and it wasn't working. So I watched this YouTube video of a guy like from a beard company you know and he said uh the trick to growing a beard is do not touch it and so i was like all right so uh, he said hide your buzzer you know somewhere else outside of outside of your reach he goes when it, don't trim it don't touch it up like don't do anything for like four straight months and he goes and then you can go like clean up the lines and stuff and i was like all right so i did it and it worked never never had you a better year to try that that journey, I suppose. Right, right. But where where are you located? Uh, so I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, the Research Triangle part of, of Raleigh. Do you like it there? I do. Raleigh's um, it's pretty great. So we're about midpoint in our state between the coast and the mountains. So I can go for a little bit longer, maybe four hours to get to proper mountains, or two and a half hours or so, and be at the beach. It's a, a nice little mix. Got good tech density here. Uh, we got a lot of telecom that was here years ago, uh, sort of where I cut my teeth uh, in the industry, but lots of universities too. So very university focused kind of um, kind of area. Uh, some pretty big names, Duke, State, UNC. Yeah, I've got some family out there. So I've been out there quite a bit. I, I do love it here. Uh, I've, you know, being in tech, I've always felt the draw of the West Coast and always kind of toyed with the idea of moving to the Valley or maybe moving like uh, Seattle or, or Portland. But uh, I never really pulled the trigger on it. I, I do plenty of trips out there and visits to talk to tech companies, but um, I've, I've been pretty happy with where I've stayed. Yeah, I would say I think that I think that happens a lot, right? Because I've thought about moving out to San Francisco or these, you know, all all over the places you described too, but I just never have actually done it. You know, I, and I, I've got the benefit now of uh, being for a working for a San Francisco-based company per se. And you know, I get to travel out there a lot without the uh, the smaller square footage and the price tag uh, associated with living there. So it's, it's the best of both worlds, I suppose. We're visitors. We enjoy it, right? Yeah. So when you're growing up there, right, what was what was going on in the technology world? Oh, wow. Um, well, I mean, way back, my, my first real memories of it, uh, you know, even before computer camps and all that good stuff. Uh, I remember my, my first computer, TRS-80, you know, tra Trash-80, model, model 3 color computer. No disk drives. Actually had the old uh, cassette tapes. I remember finally getting that and actually being able to write code in BASIC and, and playing with it. It was, again, fortunate that I had so many universities, even in the eastern part of the state, uh, computer camps and stuff. So I, I got exposure to that fairly early. But beyond that, yeah, telecom, like I say, was a huge one. Pharmacom, biotech is also pretty big here in the Triangle now as well. Uh, so it's, it's sort of all over the map. 
I saw that you worked on a Beowulf cluster and I, it sounded so cool. I had no idea what it was. And then I Googled it and I was like, oh, that's a Beowulf cluster. I didn't know the name of it, but I knew what it was. Oh yeah, man. That's, that's the way back machine. Um, yeah, that was back when I was an undergrad. Uh, I suppose that, that part of research was real. Uh, at, at East Carolina, uh, one of the first big projects I did, this was probably senior thesis kind of work, one of the first Beowulf clusters that, that we ever had, at least on campus. Uh, distributed computing was just starting to get in vogue. I guess, again, the, the pendulum was swinging, but lots of small systems working on big problems was starting to become something compelling again. So I guess I did do some research there, uh, distributed Laplace transformations and, and that kind of thing over, over Beowulf cluster. So that, I guess, also was sort of my entry point into thinking about bigger system design, not just writing software that's on a single machine doing a single job, but lots of things working together. So you write the Beowulf cluster, which I don't know what Beowulf the name means, but it just sounds cool. This is like a trend. <laughs> it's like Nethercut developed the Beowulf cluster. Like that just is a cool sentence. I like that sentence. Well, I, I can say that I, I can't take the you know, credit for the name uh, being a literary one. Um, nor, nor the tech. Beowulf was something sort of like uh, what maybe Linux was for operating system development. How it had these, these kind of grassroots movement that was coming up. Shortly thereafter, the distributed systems side of it, Beowulf was sort of that that notion of network attached computers that are all talking to each other as opposed to lots of CPUs sitting on one machine. Uh, but I, I like where your head is. I'll, I'll put that on my my resume of magical spells. I know something something about there. You Beowulf. go. And so you do this research in college, right? And then what's your first paying gig? What's your first job out of school? Uh, yeah, out of school in, in industry. Um, actually, Nortel. Um, so straight into big telecom, carrier grade communications at the time was sort of where uh, I started. And I've had a pretty interesting trajectory, I guess, over the years, but that was uh, a pretty low level foray. Um, at that point, I was doing. Uh, some device driver work, and then it was carrier grade communications. So system to system communications, SIP as protocols, that kind of thing. But pretty pretty deep in the bowels of how, uh, at the time, how voice over IP was first getting started. Right, that was the carriers were starting to try to grapple with uh, what was happening over the internet for the communication revolution, particularly around voice, but uh, text and other things were also kind of coming along. Even TV, uh, video, and whatnot over over IP was a big part of the challenge that they had in front of them. So I got to ride on that that train for a while. That was that was pretty interesting. Uh, sort of seeing the bowels of how things work and how we've connected the world. Uh, when you pick up your phone, uh, when people used to have phones on their wall and got dial tone, it's like there was a lot of magic that happened there. Uh, how did that change with mobile and how that changed with the internet? Sort of the, the that was my first ride. And then where'd you go from there? How'd you get to Genesis? Yeah, um, so it was, Nortel was big enough that I got to experience a lot of different aspects of it. That that was also, I guess, a pleasant experience of being in a large company was the idea that you could change jobs uh, multiple times every, every few years, perhaps. Uh, different technology expertise, different people that you get to work with sometimes, um, but still be in the same company. It's a lot easier to sort of tap around and, and uh, interview internally, I guess. But after that, uh, you know, the sort of bubble was bursting. Uh, I, I was there for that particular side of the ride, too, and decided maybe big industry wasn't the place for me. Uh, and I went from a company, I guess, Nortel at its height, when I was there, had around 98,000 employees worldwide. 
I mean, they were huge, just huge. Uh, and I left there and I went to a company with 25 people. Uh, so I figured, you know, let's change all the variables uh, other than my location all, all at once and see what happens. And I popped around in the startup space for a while, um, did a little contract work on the side in some startup companies, um, many of which either divested or sold off little pieces, uh, some that didn't do so well. But uh, that's, that's sort of my meandering path through that. And then I guess when I left, sort of thought, man, I'm, I think I'm done with telecom. I don't think I'm ever going to go back to big telecommunications yet. A offer was presented to me at uh, Interactive Intelligence was the company at the time out of Indianapolis. Uh, and they were basically offering a greenfield kind of project to, again, sort of communications, contact centers, but more than that, chat, video, all sorts of manners of, of how people talk with each other, basic, basically. Uh, and they were reinventing kind of the innovator's dilemma sort of idea of disruption from within and creating a brand new division, if you will, uh, that was focused on cloud native. Uh, and we had kind of an open, open-ended blank check from the CEO to, to start over, right? Write everything from scratch and do it with the most modern tech that we could. So how, how could I say no? Was that a founder CEO or just a CEO? Uh, yeah, that, there were a lot of interesting things about that. We were publicly traded at the time, which is also an astounding thing to be able to do inside of a publicly traded company. I think it, it spoke to some vision and sort of buy-in on the ideas that you do have to disrupt yourself often uh, in order to, to succeed. Um, and it was a very engineering-heavy, engineering-focused culture, so that probably fostered the ability to do it. Uh, and the CEO had had a deep understanding of, of tech and a love of it. So it, it wasn't necessarily a hard hard sell for him. But uh, I, I would assume that getting investors to buy in on that at the time, getting the board to buy in was was a challenge. But one, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that was solved. I was curious. It sounds like a smart guy. Yeah. Uh, very sharp guy. Absolutely. Um, and once that company was sold to Genesis, uh, it, it's been an enjoyable ride there, too. Um, we sort of had this secondary business unit uh, mentality where we were also running kind of concurrent paths because uh, customers are not all the same. And that's sort of where we find ourselves now is there are a few different ways to try to solve problems. Uh, and ours is one of them. Uh, very, again, aggressive cloud native, big multi-tenant public cloud types of systems, very SaaS focused as opposed to a product focused sort of mentality. But we need to be able to operate in both markets. So the idea of getting... Uh, a, a business unit effectively, which is us, Genesis Cloud, to be able to do that was uh, was a, a great trajectory to take once we became part of Genesis as well. So did it? So you got acquired by them, or it spun out, or how did that work? We did. No, it was it was a full full acquisition. So Genesis bought it lock, stock, and barrel. There was a, a lot of overlap, um, but together the companies had had, I think, a, a lot of interplay with each other over the years. Similar domain that they were trying to solve problems in, but divergent sort of market segmentation, um, but that was changing, like the whole world was changing. And I think there was a, a lot of goodness that they saw in what we were trying to do in the SaaS market. And they wanted to sort of dovetail that into all the things that they had been building along the way. Um, so they, they picked it up lock, stock and barrel. Um, so it, at this point, I'd say our collective timeline, we've got over 30 years as a company, um, Genesis proper, huge. We serve over a hundred different countries, uh, I think we handle at last count 70 plus billion interactions around the world every year. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, what are they counting? Like, how, how do you, what do you, how do you qualify an interaction? Yeah, for us, it, 
our our term for it on the Genesis Cloud side is uh, is a conversation, but interaction is pretty industry norm. Uh, it could be a phone call. Um, that would just be a single interaction. Um, could be a chat conversation. So the back and forth of that would be one interaction. Could be an email exchange, a Reddit email exchange. So yeah, it's that's it's a lot of people talking over the course of a year. Seventy billion plus of them. That's intense. I I sometimes think about not to get too far off topic, but like I sometimes think about when I'm at an event and everybody's talking, you can't really hear anything. And then everybody's quiet. And it's like, what do we sound like from like outside? Like if you listen to the crowd, you know, I, I always think that that's really, really interesting because there's, it's like listening to bees buzz, right? Like you hear them all <laughs> swarming and it's like, what are they saying to each other? And I always think it's interesting to imagine us as like one giant organism that's just distributed and it's like, what are those humans doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're a little bit of the uh, sort of super organism, the the ant colony yeah. uh, mentality. I think that's, that's it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, we we are fortunate to have that kind of vantage point where we get to see trends in communication and how things change and how people choose to communicate, at least with brands. Um, maybe not so much with each other, right? That's not the exact kind of business we're in, but certainly how how they talk with uh, the companies that they buy from or that they get services from. And Genesis has an interesting role to play in trying to help shape that narrative too. Uh, we're, we're applying techniques in AI and machine learning all the time to try to improve that experience. Uh, I, I think if you look back historically, the way that customer experience, contact centers, et cetera, would have been viewed, originally it would have been software is, is just an asset to try to create that, that cloud of, uh, of bees that you were talking about. Uh, and then the service, uh, mentality came up, software as a service sort of came along. And I think we're at a point in our timeline now where we're thinking about um, it's experience as a service. Uh, empathy is the thing that we as a brand are really trying to chase and invest in. So we uh, we have a lot of power to kind of shape and craft how people will get to talk when they're in the best of times and you know buying new things or traveling or, or seeing the world. And in some terrible times when uh, they need to be contacted because of disasters, uh, had a big part to play in contact tracing as part of COVID. Um, there's there's all sorts of problem areas that we get to sort of assist in, and that's you're right. There there is a super organism, and the sort of ebb and flow of how we talk as a species is is interesting to watch. Or my auto warranty expiring. <laughs> I get sure. so many calls. Oh, so many calls. But how? I know you don't do that specifically, but. I want to I want to put a like a tidy bow on it. So your contact center, you specialize in in what? Well, like channel wise, we don't. I wouldn't say we specialize in any of them. We we certainly have the probably biggest history in voice just because it's been around so long. So how people communicate synchronously like that is a big part of it. But journey and personalization, I guess, is really where we're uh, investing the most. Um, digital transformation. There are lots of brands that are still probably struggling to get away from the just phone call based world. Uh, and they want to either invest in other technologies like um, voice bots, chat bots, maybe just moving to digital channels. Certainly millennials and uh, even Gen Xers don't, uh, don't like to pick up phones. We prefer to do text or, or email or, or just chat. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of us uh, is trying to change how people communicate so it's both more effective and efficient but also so that you can actually get a lot more empathy we, we can build context that you need when you're talking to someone right when, when you call in because you're 
warranty has expired. Not, not when they call you. I, I don't like that one either. <laughs> Uh, but it's nice to not have to explain who you are and the problem that you're trying to solve. Like if they can already know that about you, but not in a way that's, you know, the uncanny valley of creepiness where they, you know, ask you, oh, it looks like it's about 80 degrees where you are right now. You know, that's that's getting maybe a little bit too far. But understanding you as a person and what you're trying to achieve and when you're getting frustrated, um, I think that's that's really soundedly where we're trying to to meet the need. And I'm glad you guys do exist. I remember about... 10 or 12 years ago, I was working at this on this project and the goal was they, they had, you know, outbound callers and inbound callers. And the goal was uh, there was a delay. They would call in and they would be trying to search their name and pull up this customer. And I, was, I looked at the models of the phones it's like, oh, they might have like an API or something. And the idea was to like do an HTTP pop of the person as they called in so that when you answer the phone all their entire account is in front of you the amount of difficulty it was me coming from like my world where you could just grab an api and do something really easily between systems to the phone world because i didn't have any experience programming on the sips or the phones or anything and all the stuff you would need it was like massively difficult to do yeah it's there there's a there's a lot of irony in a, a business that has so much tech driving it, uh, in some cases having such antiquated or at least difficult to leverage solutions for problems like that. It, it's pretty telling. It's the, uh, what's the idiom? The cobbler's children have no shoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. There's probably a lot of that. Um, yeah, that's that's very much where we, uh, we also started um, Genesis Cloud when we had our inception moments not only were we trying to go, let's go public cloud, let's be cloud native, right? Let's let's actually do a microservices based approach. Let's do event driven programming and event driven systems. Um, a lot of things that we kind of saw from the commercial uh, industry at the time, the Netflixes of the world, if you will, and that was working great in commercial spaces. Um, really, what we were trying to do is take that same ease of, of use, kind of to your point, SIP can be hard, and integrating those types of systems can be hard. Let's make the tech we use look a lot like what the commercial space is going through right now. But let's figure out how to do that in enterprise. And it's not just bigger problems or even harder protocols. We do all that while we still have to get things like PCI certification or HIPAA, high trust, SOC type two, like the, the laundry list of things that, you know, a, uh, maybe a Netflix doesn't have to deal with, but we do. That's pretty, that's pretty big and a, and a challenge on its own right. But also having a focus on API and a platform. So that's, that was the other big one for us. I think that was pretty powerful. We wanted to go platform first. Um, so what we built, we, we have a product, obviously, and just sell it, desktop, install if you really want it, but web-based for the, for the most part. Um, but the idea that we built all of that on top of our own platform APIs and our customers can come in and build their own, that's, that's been an underlying sort of tenant in, in what we've designed and created. And it's really resonated too. Uh, I imagine that most of uh, the folks that you've had the joy to talk to over the years have been at some point along that kind of timeline with their companies too. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this one. But many of them are going through their transformations uh, to probably public cloud or SaaS. And they're trying to be builders, but they also want to just buy something. And, and we're very much in that kind of vendor camp of you can build it, you can buy it, you can partner, and we can figure out how to make that happen. I'm curious though what you've seen as the appetite for that across different industries with, with the people that you've spoken with. 
Oh, it's super varying. Uh, first, I'd say company size, obviously a huge uh, factor on to what their strategies are, available cash, things like that, available financing. Um, I also find, I think it's uh, deeply embedded in the culture. So one example would be Salesforce. So I got to talk to Parker. They make crazy amounts of acquisitions. Like they're, it's, are they a software company or are they an acquisition company, <laughs> right? So they've gotten really good at it. Um, then I've talked to companies, you know, like maybe some server companies that will pick up, they'll pick them up for, uh, it's like, why is the acquisition happening? Sometimes they acquire for talent. Sometimes they acquire for straight customers. And sometimes they acquire because it's cheaper to acquire that technology that they want and that team. So sometimes they, they just want the people. Sometimes they want the technology and the people to run it. Sometimes they... Uh, I've rarely seen them where they just want the technology and they don't want the people because there's so much embedded knowledge in the people that make it. You really Absolutely. want that expertise. I mean, just think about it. You and me built systems our entire lives. You know how hard it is if you just are handed a code base and are like, here you go. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. Totally daunting. Yeah. yeah. So there's just such a wide variety of why they're buying. Um, but I've definitely gotten to walk through all those various types of strategies. What size of company are you? Uh, so employee-wise, um, we're, we're north of uh, 5,000 globally, I believe. Okay. Is you guys can make numbers. acquisitions, any acquisition you want almost. Yeah. Yeah, we, we are, I wouldn't say we have the same appetite uh, for, for that as maybe a, a Salesforce or an IBM or you know the, the big shops that love to do that. But we've definitely had a, a pretty good list. We've, we've had a recent one that we've uh, announced intent for uh, that's very much in the DCS, the digital customer service space. Uh, so again, trying to make sure we keep that self-disruption pipeline rolling because a lot of the buyers that we see that are going digital only don't necessarily uh, want to start with, say, the bigger type of solution. They want something smelt and smaller, and we want to be able to cater to all. We had uh, some AI acquisitions that we've done over the last few years, I think, that have been incredibly compelling. Our AI story has been, I think, dramatically improving in the last two years. Predictive engagement, predictive routing, interaction analytics. Um, we had a company that we acquired out of Canada uh, that was focused on gamification. It's another interesting avenue to go at, go down. Uh, and I think that's played pretty well this year also, um, given the amount of culture that's been probably hard for companies to maintain with their workforces, right? Being, being distributed work from home. Uh, the idea that we can foster this of internal game of, of how people work and are influenced and encouraged. Uh, I think it's healthier than just driving a KPI only focused sort of sort of model. The idea that you can have people uh, want to achieve more, uh, they want to be better than, than their neighbor in the next cube over. That's, that's, that's a great thing. So it's about empathy, not just for us trying to make sure brands have empathy talking to their customers, but it's even empathy that we have within an organization with, within their workforce that we're trying to look uh -huh. at. So if you were hiring me and I asked you what the culture is like, what, what are the people like there? You can even narrow it down to like your team, right? Sure. What would, how would you describe that? Oh, wow. Um, so I think one of the first things I say for either interns or, or new hires when we're having little onboarding sessions, uh, tribe of builders, I think is one of my first phrases that I use. Um, so on the engineering front, and I'd say really across the board, really tried to encourage and foster that experimentation mentality 
fail fast and often, but do it with a lot of transparency. Some of our best internal sort of cultural rituals are our knowledge shares around failure. Um, best, best failures to learn from are those that you didn't make, that, that your friend did, and you never have to. So people that can have that and not feel exposed. Uh, we, we have a blameless post-mortem style analysis, uh, just a, a blameless culture in general, uh, and super high autonomy. If I were going to boil it down and distill it to a single word, autonomy is probably the one that I would pick. Uh, it's one that we've done both I think, culturally from a business philosophical standpoint and a little innovator's dilemma maybe coming through on that front. Uh, and also from a technology and even processing compliance standpoint, teams, teams here have an awful lot of autonomy. The price for it is responsibility. Um, we, we have a DevOps mentality that okay. I like to think of DevOps isn't the team, it's the paradigm. Like when we have teams, they're responsible from the inception of an idea that turns into a service built as a microservice, deployed, operationalized, kept running and watched all the way through revenue, uh, all by the same team, right? So there's an ownership mentality. And when you buy into that and, and you recognize that, yeah, I'm on call for it, but I have a lot of tools and robots around me that actually keep the thing working if I do it right, that, that's a pretty good trade-off. Uh, and, and you get a lot of sort of leniency and autonomy to do it the way that you want to. I like that. Price for autonomy is responsibility. That's good. I'm gonna, we, we need to make a quote out of that. We need to make a little quote graphic and post that yeah, on, on like the Insta it. internet. Yeah, that's truth. That is so true. Yeah, well said, and, and man. it's worked for us in spades. Like when when we started, uh, again, I was I was there uh, pretty close to day one, first, first 10 employees or so on, on the project that was starting Pure Cloud, which is now Genesis Cloud. And now we are hundreds uh, specifically just working on that product. So from zero code sitting in, in a Git repo somewhere to uh, over 400 services now, 400 microservices comprise what we build and deploy. Um, we're in 10 regions around the globe. Um, we're sort of all over the map on the types of technologies and services that we use from the big vendors like, like AWS, for example. And we do thousands of deploys every week into, into production. So our appetite for the continuous integration and continuous delivery philosophy has been really high. Uh, and the only way to do that is to have teams that are really enabled to do it, good guardrails to make sure that, that they can't break things and, and good cultural efforts to educate. So when you're on the manufacturing floor and something goes wrong, you smash the big red button, uh -huh. right? And the production chain comes to a halt and everybody figures out what's going on. You run through that exercise. How do you guys do that over there? What's your big red button? Um, I don't know that there's a single red button, but there's, there's a few layers along our process that we've got for that. Um, we certainly have uh, an organization, one of, one of my teams actually, that's responsible for sort of service reliability engineering. And not so much that they go in and try to make sure a team is, is right or that they tell them how to do it necessarily. I like to think of it as a lateral sort of uh, leadership principle. The Spotify-ish model, sort of, a very, very guild-focused. So think of this as the SRE guild as opposed to a team that just does reliability. So they, they have a set of rituals and processes that they can probably hold things back. Uh, we do have at least enough of a change management, automated though it may be, uh, that certainly things have to get approved and we have ways to stop that approval from automatically happening. And we even have robots that will watch 
one in particular that the team is built called Overseer or Overwatch rather. Uh, that Ooh, that will, sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. O- o- Overwatch will make sure that if uh, things are not above board with our normal conformance, right? You've got to have good alerts. You've got to have good monitoring. You've got to adhere to certain types of principles, sort of twelve-factor app-ish kinds of things. And if you don't, it will it will notice and and prevent you from making your way up into production and, and sort of trigger the reviews that you need to get to get above the bar. So those are the biggest things I guess we have as to stopping all of the uh, the assembly lines. That's pretty cool. I had a conversation this past week with, uh, I think his name is John from Kentaba. But uh, it was really interesting because I hadn't thought about this much, the big red button concept. And mm-hmm. they were building this tool and he was like a really smart guy. And he had done, he was like at Facebook when they grew from like 4,000 to 20,000 people. And he was responsible for building like workplace by Facebook and a couple other big projects. So I was like, Ooh, he's really, really smart. And uh, he had a couple co-founders, you know, there's like three of them and they're a relatively small company, but they took all their learnings and got together with all their friends that had worked at Facebook. And they're like, Oh, you know, what do you, what do we really miss from Facebook? Like, what did they do? Well, you know, you're over at Stripe now you're over at all these big companies in the Valley. And they're like, Oh, we really miss this one, this one tool. It was like a big red button type deal. And uh, because it allowed us to do this incident response, but the way it allowed that incident management to occur was just tremendous. It was just very valuable. So they essentially built, started with that seed and built this really cool thing. And so now I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's neat. And so uh, I love it. And I heard great things about you too, from Henry over at company nurse. He's like, these guys are awesome. Yeah, Henry's Henry's a great use case. Um, it's it's fun watching again people who who want to construct, right? It's internally the type of mentality and philosophy that a lot of people internally have, and when that tracks and jives so well with how uh, a consumer of our services thinks and wants to function, uh, you know, it's a it's a perfect match. Um, it's it's great watching how quickly we can enable them. Um, the Problem areas that they always want to solve. It, it's so interesting to see how unique they may be. Um, so yeah, Henry, um, I guess for other folks who haven't listened to that one yet, they they are dealing with healthcare inside of workplace. And if you can imagine a harder area hit in the last 12 months, uh, wow. Yeah, and they've had to pivot pretty hard. So I, I think their story of how they can react and how they are going to use and leverage their vendor relationships to just change their tooling. There you go. So I'm really curious to know how does how is it compared to like the Twilio? Doesn't Twilio have like a call center type system? Like why why one over the other? Or like would a person? I know so little about this. Just to be upfront, I didn't know if somebody would even choose between those if they're competitors or if they're similar or or what the deal is there. Sure, sure. In tech, I mean. Uh, the tech world has plenty of enemies, but a lot more frenemies, I would say. Yeah. Um, Twilio is definitely not sauna non grata around here by any means. I'd say our, our origin stories are vastly different. They came in with, you know, sort of the, the atom and materials that they were working with for the actual, the mechanism by which you communicate. And they were bringing a very, very API and builder focused way on how to send a text message, right? Let's distill it to one of their easiest use cases. Uh, and now they've built a bit of an ecosystem and some API layering on top of that. And you're right, they do have some things that work in the customer experience space. 
but theirs are, I guess, communication focused. Uh, and we're trying to go from the people centric focused and the, the, the journey that people are on and trying to build that as part of it. So I guess it's a, it's, it's a difference in the fundamental building blocks on, on how we're constructed. And some of the problem areas that we're going after, for example, are, are well beyond that one. So I, I mentioned workforce engagement is part of what uh, our solution crafts as well. So it's not just about, hey, can I send a message to this person? But it's how many times have they spoken with the brand? What's their sentiment been like over the years? How's that relationship changing? How can I guide them to the next best action they should take? If they're on the website, when do I interject with one of the agents? You know, the annoying chatbot that just pops out and asks, do you need any help? Like, we don't want to do that. We want to say, in fact, our predictive engagement solution is watching what you're doing on the site, comparing that to what others have done, passing it, you know, vectorizing all that, sending it through some, some wonderful AI. And uh, out the other side comes a probability score on you successfully being able to do what you're trying to do. Uh, and if we see that changing, that's when we know that we can interject ourselves. And then tie all of that to, well, how do you staff it when you can't? How do you have your workforce know when to grow and shrink throughout the year? How do you schedule them? How do you train them? How do you improve their life? That is a lot greater than the sort of problem domain that I think some of the other competitors in our sort of go after. Yeah, well, that's way, way more in depth. That's pretty cool. How do I, is this something where I have to talk to sales or can I go like sign up for it? How do I experience it and see it? Yeah, there's a website as usual is a great place to start. Um, we've definitely done free trial in the past and sort of a just click and poof, you're there. Given obviously moves around the world over, over the years, we do usually have a little bit of involvement that happens after that. Uh, if you're buying phone numbers and you're setting up, oh, I don't know, uh, you need to handle a uh, hundred thousand calls every day. Uh, that's the kind of thing that we like to hear about, but we put you inside of, it's not a single instance for us. It's all multi-tenant. So you're already going into a big pile. Uh, of other customers, thousands of customers around the world, and hundreds of thousands of, of users active every week. So yeah, you you join in that and you benefit from all of the infrastructure that's been built to support them. So there's no hardware deployment. It's, it is truly SaaS. Uh, so you can consume it with just a web browser if you want. We've had, uh, we've had onstage uh, experiments before where we had someone unwrap a Chromebook onstage sign up for our site, have the org ready and take a phone call before they got off stage for like a regular 30 or 45 minute talk. Uh, so whether, whether sales is involved or not, if they, they will be as part of onboarding. Uh, it's still a pretty svelte and, and fast process. Uh, another, uh, I don't know if I'll say the name, but a sort of a flag carrier airline in Mexico was one of uh, the comers to our platform during uh, the last year and a half. Um, and as I recall, they needed to obviously have employees starting to work from home. It was 36 hours for them from buy to go live with their, their agent pool being able to work from wherever they were in Mexico. So it's, it's a pretty fast process for sure. Yeah, I found that it's pretty interesting how you get so excited when you get these big customers, but all the big customers by default put in their contract that you can't from <laughs> say that you are like their provider. And so then you, I find myself like, this sucks. It's like you get a fortune 500 company and now I can't tell people that, <laughs> you know, you're my customer. And, and so, uh, well, you can't market it, but I, I don't know. I just, I found that kind of interesting because my experience as a user going around is like all the logos are on all the websites and it's like, <laughs> 
all the logos are on the websites. Clearly, they're negotiating this somehow. Indeed. So. In fact, we, we have some that you could look at on our website, um, say large ride sharing companies, for example, that uh, while we can show it and talk about it in certain contexts, using their their name is not necessarily something that on our, our PR firm and uh, uh, folks internally will will shudder if I start. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so much fun, though. Like for me, like it it's, hard not to. <laughs> it's hard not to because we're really proud. Our, our sort of marquee top line customer says, Genesis may not be a name that many of your listeners know, but I guarantee you, you know, the brands that are enabled by what we've built. Guaranteed. It is, isn't that cool though, too? Like when you're at a party or you're out like meeting people, it's like to be able to connect it back to something that, that the person knows, even if you're meeting like a, when, you know, one of your kids' parents, they're, they're not going to be like knee deep and like VoIP and stuff like that. But uh, they'll know a, a large name. They'll know like a Walmart or none of these are your, necessarily your customers. They, they know they know big brand names. And so it makes them feel like comfortable. And then you can have that conversation. Unless if you don't want to talk and then you can just be like, I'm in telecom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. SIP and voiceover IP is uh, definitely the, the cocktail party killer for sure. So what's your day-to-day like? You, you're at this larger company. You acquired, you got in there. You have all you have several products. You have this, you know, customer experience platform. You got a lot going on, right? Mm-hmm. What does your actual day-to-day look like? Wow. Yeah, it's um it's pretty varied. So architectural guidance, I guess, is a big part of, of what sort of my sub piece of uh, the organization uh, cares deeply about. Um, so there's a, a lot of that kind of practice going on, working with teams that are coming up with new ideas trying to figure out the, the right way to navigate. In- engineers can be interesting uh, uh, creatures to, to interface with. Telling them how to do something isn't always great. People like to figure out how to build things themselves, uh, but also knowing um, here's the way that we've been successful building houses. And also there's a there's a fire code involved, right? Like I, I see it as a lot of that kind of a, um, maybe a, an overlay from another industry if you wanted to put it in there. Another big part of it, um, the SRE team that I mentioned uh, that that's part of our organization, uh, they would be like maybe the fire marshals doing controlled burns um, rather than them going into a situation and telling people how to get more reliability uh, by writing this line of code. Instead, we've built our own chaos tools, right? If you're familiar with chaos engineering, we oh, do yeah. that every day of the business day in our development and testing environments. We've got all kinds of chaos. The simple ones like servers just disappear We've long since gotten past that being problematic, but doing more nefarious things that happen in cloud, like 10% of your packets from one set of servers and one available one data center uh, have problems talking to this other one, or 5% of failures trying to write to a database, like strange esoteric things that at scale absolutely happen. So ideating on that and figuring out how to build the tools around it that can enable those engineering teams, the, the bigger community of teams, to, to move forward with surety that what they're building is safe. That's that's a big part of it. Uh, M&A is certainly part of it too. I get to, um, again, saying we have some appetite for sure for, for acquisitions and, and such. Uh, so I get the benefit of talking to a lot of companies there uh, in that arena. And sometimes it's a partner relationship too. Um, we have a very thriving app foundry. That's uh, sort of our marketplace, if you will, that different vendors can come in and build solutions atop ours say some customized reporting for a specific market vertical, for example, something that we might not uh, either have the business domain expertise to chase or just not want to you know, spe- specialize ourselves quite that much. 
Uh, so I get to talk to a lot of those uh, types of builders as well and see what they're creating. Yeah, it, I, I have a lot of leniency of being able to go top top to bottom. Uh, one thing that Henry did say to you uh, that I thought was kind of funny, that if you have if your CTO is still writing code, uh, maybe, maybe you're doing the wrong thing with your CTO, so, something like that, loosely paraphrased. That's why my title is technically chief architect. So I, I've reserved the luxury to still write some code from time to time. <laughs> I love it, man. My favorite thing is the opinions are so strong on everybody. And I, I get the unique vantage point where I've had like hundreds of these conversations and it's just so, uh, it's so diverse. It's, it's really about the person, right? Like, I don't know if I said this to, to Henry from my experience, but, uh, it's, it's, it's more about the person having self-awareness of where they enjoy spending their time because I see very successful CTOs that have office of the CTO and all they do is tinker with a team of 10 and they're in a billion dollar company and they have a VP Avenge or like some print, some, some label of the person who's running engineering or product or whatever. And they just sit there and develop interesting solutions or like things that might be 10 years off or proof of concepts because that's what they like doing. So I think the problem comes up like when people reach out to me through like the website chat or send me emails like listeners mm -hmm. the thing i identify most as the problem is when there's conflict in that meaning the person wants to be writing code but they're not able to be writing code because they haven't shifted their responsibilities and made the right hire so that they can be doing what they want to be doing and so typically when that conflict comes up you know, I'll jump on a call with them or something or send them a, send them a nice email uh, because because that's what's happening. And it's like you have to know what you want to do and how you want to spend your time and then hire around juice to make that scenario reality. I, I, I like the zen of, of where your thinking is there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's there's no single structure of an organization. I think that's just the winner. I mean, that's that's probably some pretty bad old thinking. Um, yeah, you utilize utilize your company's resources as you need to, but don't be overly adherent to old process and extant culture necessarily. The whole point of innovating is to try to change some of those things. I think it's important for people to figure that out for their own career path too. Sometimes you got to create the job that you want. Um, oh, that's, that's a hard yes. lesson to learn. That is exactly what you have to do. That creativity, that's what you're, what you're there for. It's, and when you can empower people that want that, that want that ownership or that have that creativity, that want to run, man, I, I have boiled it down to a few things and I'm not like at 5,000 people, we're at like 15 people, but we're we're not broke, you know? And and we, we were at one point. So like you figure out how not to be broke and how not to be broke is to have really bright people who want to do good work and then coach them in the right directions and let them have ownership. And if you can get those things right at the like, and then make sure it's tying back to revenue and that you're directing them. And, and, you know, I heard something the other day that's been sticking with me quite a bit. Um, somebody had said, you know, 90% of, of, of being a great leader is giving the, the right work to the right person. And I was like, yeah, there you go. It's, it's hard to know. Um, if you had asked me, you know, 10 years ago, uh, would I have in, in sort of outlined a lot of what my day-to-day -day is, so uh, another big part of it, I work a lot with our vendors like AWS, for example. I'm, I'm pretty close with a bunch of their product teams and uh, their leadership organization. Get the benefit of us um, being such heavy adopters. And, you know, they have a big ocean of, uh, of consumers, obviously. Uh, and we're, we're bigger than a drop in that ocean. It might be like a bucket, a bucket in the ocean. 
but they have been very receptive, I think, just because of our, our appetite and, and feedback on features and capabilities and, and how to build a modern platform that kind of resonates with an enterprise, like enterprise needs. Because that was, in some ways, their origin story too, but generalizing that for all enterprises away from just the Amazon.com side of their, their world, they've been a great partner in, in that as well. So I, I get a good bit of that in my gig as well. But if you had outlined all of these and talked about the vanishingly small amount of time I do get to code, which is non-zero, but not as much as it definitely was 10 years ago, I'm not sure I would have loved what you were telling me. But having sort of navigated my own way there and, and found it, it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's a different experience. I guess it's the idea of building that house, back to that metaphor, where the engineering teams are still building lots of their, their individual homes. And I've got folks that are doing uh, fire code and controlled burn. And I've got uh, the DevOps automation team that's building the tooling, which is basically the, the roads and the utility companies. Uh, and I get to act uh, with some of my architects, like they're the city planners. And I get to look at the vantage point of, of watching a sort of international full, full system back, back to your ant colony, the, the meta organism that is the human race, sort of the microcosm of that with a couple hundred services and 5,000 people. How much time do you spend? I mean, you have large clients, right? And they want to know that there's there's a level of comfort if I can hang out with Glenn, right? And, and our servers or our services are dependent upon them. So how much time do you get to spend like with your customers? Um, I spend... Um, I would say a few hours every week, at least talking either with, with customer or partner, um, probably the same amount of time talking with, with prospects or customers that are looking to expand and have different challenges. Um, so pretty substantial. Um, our product team, the, the PM organization obviously is pretty close with them as well, at least for how ideas get into our pipeline. Uh, I think we've done a great job on that one too, toot our own horn a little bit there. We leverage you know, an ideas portal where our customers, even internal folks, account team members, for example, can put things up. So not a complete roadmap available for obvious reasons, uh, corporate reasons, but um, within the customer base, people can actually see what other customers are kind of suggesting, recommending, add on the vote train. That speaks a lot more like a startup than it does an enterprise company with, you know, thousands of people and, and many thousands of, of customers. Uh, so I, I really love the fact that we've got that type of tight relationship where our customers can influence what we're building. We, we definitely want to focus on a, we've got a vision of the right things to build that help the most people. You know, we're not trying to necessarily do contract work for each individual company, although we do have professional services that do that. But as a platform, hearing a bunch of different ones, I kind of have a rule of three, right? Usually you have to do something three times or hear something three times before you build the right version of it. So at least having a good sample set of customers asking for a feature, it takes a lot of those conversations to understand what they're really asking for, or at least a generalized approach to one that would satisfy bigger needs. So I, yeah. I, I really like the idea of, of listening to the people that you're trying to, to serve. Yeah, back to the buzzing hive. Like I have found you go around, you talk to enough people, you kind of, you get, you start to, it's almost as if we're, we're like very basic organic AI. <laughs> Uh, hopefully not the A part, but yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny, dude. This is good. Have you? Do you get to geek out as far as like exploring things? Maybe not at work, but just in your personal life. 
like how they're storing data inside of DNA or any of those types of edge technologies? You know, if I were a vastly, uh, you know, scientifically advanced alien race and I were, I was looking for a way to preserve my culture's knowledge and all the things that we had learned, uh, a self-replicating self-healing storage mechanism sure makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Right. But too bad it's memories wiped. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't make it so that it's genetic memory, but I would, I would write it in the uh, genetic code, we got a lot of the, what, introns or whatever, all, all the non-coding parts of our DNA that aren't actually making any proteins. Like, that's a great place to, you know, I don't know, hide my my recipe for bread, uh, well, what, whatever we need to keep. <laughs> it's amazing how much knowledge, I mean, you have kids, right? I, I thought you said earlier you have some kids. It's amazing, like, when you can't explain it unless if you have it, but when you have the kids, you see that they, they'll pick up things and have these traits that, like, you know, they didn't get from any of the content they're consuming. You're spending all your time with them. And so they're not like around strangers. Like, so there is just this like pre-programmed natural personality that's coming out in them. And it's hilarious. Yep. There, there are proclivities and uh, personality for sure. <laughs> that's, that is distinct and yeah. unique. Uh, definitely nature plus nurture is, uh, is both prevalent and man. Yeah. Definitely haven't been around other people in the last year. Uh, so or some of the idioms have been picked up. I I guess I'll never know. But it's certainly fun watching watching the strangeness uh, emerge. Uh, the, the youngest one has just turned two. So she's, okay. she's known just as much pandemic time as not. So uh, for us, like her family unit is we're almost the only people on earth. Um, but she yep. is a distinctly different personality already. So however that happens, it happens. I have a one that's just turned two a few months ago and then one that's about to turn four. So my son's the youngest, my daughter's the oldest. And uh, last night she had said like, oh, you know, somebody pushed me at school and I was like, oh, I'll go to school and like beat them up for you. Right. You know, like jokingly and uh, I'll protect you. And she goes, no, she goes, daddy's not allowed at school. She goes, daddy and mommy are people at home and and then she listed her teacher's name. She goes, and they are at school and you guys live at home and I see you here and you're my family. And then I go to school and that's where everyone else is. And I was like, <laughs> she thinks we're like at home all the time when she's at school that we just are these people that live here like constantly. And that's all we do is just wait for her to come home. <laughs> look, look at her running a clustering algorithm and, and I know. people into, into categories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I for one don't exist when people aren't watching me, so. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure all of this is a simulation. So, uh, agreed. Uh, that's like a little quantum trick you figured out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Maybe a little more Doctor Strange and a little less, uh, a little less Dumbledore, but still none, nonetheless <laughs> magical. Dude, I like you. How, how long until I like the speech you're talking to? Like, let's say you're in the telecom space. When will I make a phone call into a call center? It be completely autonomous like computer systems handling it, but I have no idea. Ah, um, well, I will say that, that a lot of the generative algorithms for language are starting to get pretty, pretty good. Uh, GPT-3s and, and whatnot, being able to solve those kinds of problems. I don't know that you're going to see it in the next five years that they're passing the Turing test, like that they could fool you if you were trying to figure it out. But if you were being straight to business, just trying to get it done and not trying to trip them up and find out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we're 10, 10 years away from that by any means. Uh, you, you're being completely fooled by it. That's amazing. I love that. And then how long until I can pay you for an outbound sales team that can pass the Turing test? 
an outbound sales team that can. <laughs> There's no hope. <laughs> I want them to be closing deals. <laughs> it will happen one day. It's just that's like a hundred year time scale, probably. Maybe, maybe. NP hard. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> what are you excited about in the near term future for technology? Wow. I mean, within our industry, obviously, there's there's a ton around AI and there's a ton around like I, I've loved the cloud journey side of it. Like that's if it doesn't if it doesn't come through the idea of what we've built and how we built it, like the how to me has just been just as important. So I, I guess doubling down on a lot of those strategies and seeing how they play out, how a more services focused world and market, how that jives. Uh, but ML for us, AI for us is is clearly the big one. Um, so I'm excited to see what we do in the assisted space there, as, probably as much as anything. While deflection or, or, or complete self-service automation and handling by the bots that you just uh, mentioned is, is a cool idea and great. And certainly we need some of that to do, do more with less. I, I love just as much, probably a bit more, the idea that the bots actually don't exist to replace the people. They exist to actually improve what those people are doing. So for us, agent assist is that type of technology where it's suggesting, hey, this is what they're asking about. This is their history. And I think I know what their problem is, even though they can't articulate it. And you don't have to figure it out, but I can tell you what I think it may be. Uh, I can do guided workflows. I can even offer you what I think the next, next best resolution is for doing this, right? They, they want to cancel uh, their, their cable service or whatever uh, and not trying to upsell them because a the flowchart tells me to. That's one thing. But knowing that we should proactively reach out because of their usage pattern and try to upsell them. Like that could be useful to say, hey, you, you seem to like all these things. We've got a package set that actually $2 more, but you get all the things that it seems like you want to get. Like I, I think technologies like that that help us understand what people want and empathize with where they are, that's that's a pretty exciting space. Watching Watching that part of ML expand. That's interesting. And yeah, and outside of our space, uh, I, I want to see where quantum goes for sure. I, I think we're a bit farther off on that one, maybe than uh, than some would like to believe. But we always we always underestimate what we can do in one year and overestimate what we can do in ten. I think so. Uh, What's the result? What are we looking for out of quantum? I mean, there's certainly a huge amount of privacy that we can actually derive from it. It's, it's interesting when people talk about quantum, one of the first things they talk about is breaking crypto, but the idea that we actually get better privacy out of using quantum algorithms instead, I think is pretty amazing. Optimization problems suddenly become a vastly different thing. We, we Again, for workforce planning and engagement and stuff, we have a bunch of different techniques, discrete event simulation or um, a, a lot of mixed integer programming type models, right? Uh, but the idea of being able to take quantum technologies to that, to optimize and, and solve for things, that that'll be huge, and then outside of that, boy, man, uh, let, let's let's go for Mars. Sign, sign me, do sign it. me up. Let's do it. I want to make sure that we have a, a call to action. So people want to explore this system. Maybe they're they're looking for contact center solutions. Where do they go? What do they do? Um, yeah, I, many of the people that are probably listening to this uh, are either fighting similar battles about how to rapidly innovate, how to do more with less, how to differentiate themselves. Um, that That's sort of the game that we're playing. And we're trying to chase experience as a service and not just software as a service. So really helping you expand what you can do uh, and, and how you do it and how you empathize and how you build trust and loyalty with, with your customer base in a kind of healthy cycle. 
Um, so yeah, uh, jump online, genesis.com. There's uh, other offers as well as ours that you can explore if you've got different uh, demands. But if you also like public cloud, you like the idea of being on a, a microservices cloud native architecture, and you like what I'm talking about with platform, and you're a builder at heart, and you want to be able to build on top and not just consume something, look at what's there. We've got a developer center that's got APIs and articles, and our dev evangelists are there trying to explain things and how to do unique problem solving all the time. Great place to explore, uh, and in all those places, you can find a way to click and get more info and and talk to said salespeople if you want to onboard and try it out. Excellent. And then what are you learning right now as a leader? Ooh, uh, like what, what, what am I reading? What am I watching? What am I you just, what are you learning? What are you seeing out there in the world? But what lesson, what's that hard lesson that you're learning right now that you probably don't want to share? <laughs> Ooh, hard, hard lesson that I'm learning. I guess one of them is a uh, technology supply does not always equal the market demand. Sometimes tech supplies more. Sometimes, sometimes you're building something that's not what is needed yet. Sometimes you can't build enough to satisfy what people want in a particular arena. And that, that's, that's hard as a technologist. I guess throwing back to like the, uh, the VHS versus beta, dating myself here, VHS versus beta conversation. You, you can have different tech and some better tech and that doesn't mean that it will always win. Um, so figuring out how to sort of rectify that in your brain and build what people need, what they're going to need, but not something that they're not going to need for 10 years can sometimes be a tricky balancing act to go through. Yeah, living in the future is tough because it has to be close enough to where like, if you already have a stable system, right, and your customers are happy, then you already have that process of you're interacting with your customers, you're building what they need in the right now. But to build out in the future, it gets really really unclear am i building something that's three six nine twelve months ten years out and figuring out where to hit that that's where you got to run the experiments and place bets and you sometimes you'll lose but you got to keep trying yep yeah it's 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 uh i guess the gretzky uh comment about skate where the puck's going to be yeah um, it is sort of the best mentality to approach it with um, but we all want to i think especially futurists and technologists are particularly vexed by this we, we want to skate to where we think it's eventually going to go <laughs> and sort of overshoot a lot of that and that it can be hard to pull yourself back from that sometimes overbuilding and over engineering is an easy thing to do but being being practical bringing a, a air of practicality and awareness of other pressures beyond just the technical uh is is a continuing challenge um but then also to figure out how to how to convince people that some of their long-held beliefs and how they do things are wrong without telling them that they're wrong uh, the, 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 I guess the best technique is to have them arrive at the conclusions that you wanted to make, but they're the ones who, who drew the conclusion. That's the, that's the best way. It's a decision they made in their brain. Uh, so I guess le learning that technique is maybe a big one. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.